Life Audio. Hey, welcome to the Gospel Rant. I'm Dr. Bill Sinyard with Gospel App Ministries, gospel-app.com. Hey, listen, um, this is a special series in the Gospel Rant. I mean, dealer's choice. We're going to continue to go through the Sermon on the Mount. In addition, we're going to go through the first letter of Paul to the Thessalonians. And here's why. I'm headed, I'm so grateful, I'm headed on a tour uh, in Greece that is tracing Paul's steps in the second missionary journey. I'm not leading it. I'm participating in it. I'm looking so forward to that. Uh, So I was doing my own thing, my own study, you know, kind of getting prepared. uh, And then I thought, you know, I'm doing all this effort. Why not share it with the Rant family? And, And my goal is this, and you can appreciate this if you've been following the Rant, is I want to get into Paul's head. Before we head to Philippi and Thessalonica and Athens and Corinth, you know, what was he thinking in 49, 50, 51 AD? What was he feeling? This was his second missionary journey, but it was a reach. I mean, this was, he's going places where the gospel has never been. Um, so what was his strategy and did it change? What was he thinking? I mean, I mean, he's planting churches. I've been a church planter. I'm just fascinated by this. And first Thessalonians, is a perfect place to start. It's perhaps the first epistle that Paul ever wrote. Uh, Perhaps, I mean, apart from Galatians, I happen to think Galatians came first, but man, 1 Thessalonians is so unique for Paul. It's It's nothing I've ever seen. It's very emotional. It's naked. Paul is being transparent, and it's clear that he's still learning. He's still figuring it all out. He's, he's actually figuring the gospel out and how to communicate it better and, and uh, his own faith. Look, I get it. I can relate. I think this is so refreshing. I think uh, millennials will appreciate uh, Paul at First Thessalonians. So welcome. I don't know how many podcasts this will take. We're working fast because the trip is coming up, all right? Before we get started, I want to get a word from our sponsors. You know we're being sponsored by lifeaudio.com. Check them out. A lot of other Christian podcasts. Now let's stop for a word from our sponsors. But look around you, your family, your faith. They're not in the way. They are the way. From the creators of Jesus Revolution comes the incredible true story. It's going to be dangerous and scary and giving up. It's not an option. The story of one family's journey from down under to center stage. Unsung Hero, a for King and Country film starring Candace Cameron Bure and Terry O'Quinn. In theaters now. Visit unsunghero.movie to learn more. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. The Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org impact. Hey, welcome back. All right. So rant. So for you who are new, uh, if you just got this because you're excited about 1 Thessalonians, welcome. Uh, here's what we do here at Gospel Rant is this is not a finely quaffed Bible study ready for publication. Uh, this is me digging into the text, scratching and clawing. Man, I'll ask questions that I'm thinking that you're going to ask or want to ask. We'll make some observations. Uh, I hope they're Good, but but again, I allow myself to uh, to stretch the to push the envelope a little bit, uh, 
The goal is to get into Paul's head, to ask questions that maybe you've never been able to ask before of your pastor as, as he or she is preaching from the pulpit. Uh, so anyway, uh, when, when we deal with the verses of First Thessalonians, we're going to be working primarily with, with my expanded translation. Um, so, and, and by expanded, I mean, I'm not, I, I had done a word-for-word translation in the Greek, but I'm, uh, the, the language that I'll be using is, is that, plus I'm updating it a little bit for modern audience and taste. Okay, so here's just the first couple of verses. Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. As Silas, Timothy, and I pray regularly in the presence of God, we constantly are amazed at how the faith, love, and hope was birthed in you by our Lord Jesus Christ. It clearly produced in you a new desire to do good works for others, a heaven-sourced love for others, even though you were being persecuted. There is a new endurance that is inexplicable by human means. Everyone can see that our gospel came to you not in just mere words, but also with transforming power and with the Holy Spirit, leaving no doubt that something miraculous has happened. Oh my goodness. All right, we're going to get back to that in a little bit more detail, but you get, you get a sense what Paul is doing. I mean, he is, he is amazed and humbled and grateful and joyous at the reports he's gotten back from the Thessalonians when he was extremely worried that everything that what he had built was a house of cards and persecution was going was just going to trash it. Man, I totally relate to that. Okay? So, um again, as we get into this, this was probably the earliest letter with the possible exception of Galatians. One scholar, by the way, probably one of the best scholars I've come across, thinks that first second Thessalonians is actually first, but for now I'm going to stick with the order, the biblical order. This is part of the second missionary journey. Uh, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and they picked up Luke in Troas, so the four uh, uh, greats, Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke. We'll talk more about them. And they're going to be bumping up against some new things and some some old things, okay? And listen, this is a very important strategic city for Paul. Don't know if he had this in his head. I don't know if he knew what was going on in the new province, you know, we, we make a big deal that he's, he finally went from Asia to, to Europe, but back then it was just a new Roman province. But it was a Roman province that it appears that there had been no gospel before. I don't think Paul knew what he was headed into. I think he was going by the seat of his pants. I mean, you know, biblically, he's following the Spirit's lead, but I'm trying to get into his head. It's a little harder getting to the Spirit's head, right? So anyway, so, but Thessalonica extremely uh, strategic. From Thessalonica, the gospel could go west on the Via Ignatia, this Roman superhighway, uh, to Rome and even beyond. A messenger could go from Rome to Byzantium uh, using the Via Appia and the Via Ignatia in 21 days. Before Rome built that highway, the Via Ignatia and the Via Appia in, in Italy, it took two to three months, and even worse in the winter. But also from Thessalonica, the gospel could sail south to Achaia, to Athens, to Corinth, or east to the massive city, the important city of Ephesus. It could go north to the Danube River and all of the, the pagan tribes up in, in uh, Eastern Europe. So, and, and this road, this Roman road, the Via Ignatia was a masterpiece of construction, uh, six to 20 feet wide in places. Missionaries, 
as they travel on this, it was highly traveled, we think, they would have found themselves bumping alongside of Roman soldiers and merchants and religious missionaries, prophets of all shapes and kinds, teachers, government officials, priests, philosophers, pilgrims, entertainers, um, male and female prostitutes. I mean, just so many other people. This was just a, a public thoroughfare. So think of Think of a highway without cars, and and so they would have been bumping up against real people, people they wanted to reach with the gospel. So we're told Paul, Luke, Timothy, and Silas took a two-day's voyage uh, from Troas in Asia to Neapolis, and then a one-long-day journey to Philippi. They were there for maybe two months. Paul and Silas then took a five-day, 100-mile journey to Thessalonica. We'll say more about that when we get to it. The Thessalonians... You know, it's interesting, a little tidbit, they were famous for their wide-brim hat with felt naps, and uh, many speculate that this was an imitation of Alexander and the Great, who came from Macedonia, and uh, he reportedly wore the same headgear in battle. Isn't that interesting? I'd love to see what that looks like. Maybe I'll pick one up. Among the notable converts in Thessalonians, we'll see Aristarchus and Secundus, who journeyed with Paul to Jerusalem. Aristarchus was also with Paul in Ephesus and much of the third missionary journey. Jason is one of the first converts. He became their, their benefactor. I'll say more. This is very important. We'll say more about benefactors. He was with Paul in Corinth and uh, perhaps the uh, infamous trader Demas, uh, but we'll see more about that. All right. So this letter is going to give us some insight into Paul's evolution as a, a letter writer. It's a lot of fun. Uh, ask questions. By the way, you can ask questions on Gospel Rant. Bill at gospel-app.com. Love to hear them. So I suspect that when he wrote this letter from Corinth in 50 AD or so, he was just expecting that the letter be read to the Thessalonians. So, you know, now we think about Paul and his letters and almost the expectation that every church was going to get the letter. I think it's just more personal to the Thessalonians. Um, maybe shared with the Bereans and the Philippians. They were very close. But this was to a group of people that he shared life with, that he became the father of, that he became brother of, and he knew they were being persecuted, and he thought he was going to lose them. Um, I mean, context, there was this amazing, shocking revival. It shocked even Paul when he was there. Uh, but then he was forced to leave. And so, so now what? Imagine the emotions. So it's a unique letter for Paul. It's not highbrow. It's not wildly theological. Like, uh, like Galatians and Romans, for instance, it's personal. And you know what? It comes across almost unedited. Um, he's not playing a lot of literary tricks. It's, it's him just speaking from the heart, it sounds like. Very transparent. Paul's emotional. And he repeats himself. He uses the same phrases or words. He says, you yourself know, brothers, over and over again. He talks about bubbling over. Uh, he talks about the good news of God. It's clear in the text of 1 Thessalonians that he's worried about the persecution, and he thought that it was going to tear down what had been built. And, you know, that was a crisis of faith for Paul. But then he gets a report from Timothy in Corinth that was ridiculous, and he's almost speechless. He's overjoyed. He, he can't even—he uh, he asks how can he express his joy and gratefulness to the, to the Thessalonians. I love it. The other thing I want to highlight is the emphasis that in 1 Thessalonians, like Romans, by the way, Romans 8, and, uh, and like Ephesians, Ephesians 4, or 3, 
He puts a ridiculous amount of emphasis compared to today on the Spirit working, on following the Spirit, on depending upon the Spirit. And when there is conversion, this is, this is exciting for me, there's notable signs of the Spirit that have actually changed and transformed. Transformation is another word that he repeats. He, he, he shows, and by the way, Luke picks this up. You know, he's traveling with Paul, so he's picking this up. When the Spirit changes people, one of the evidences is joy that wasn't there before. Hospitality, caring for others that just wasn't there before, and gratefulness. Uh, look, I think that's a lesson for today as well. I mean, we're looking for, uh, you know, how do, how do you know you're saved? Well, here's the fruit of the Spirit that Paul was looking for. And, and I also think that as we get into First Thessalonians, we're seeing growth in his faith, Paul's faith. He was very concerned, worried, stressed out that the church wasn't going to survive without his leadership. But he sees... He begins to see, he learns that the Spirit has always provided the core leadership. I mean, we say that theologically, but here's, here's Paul kind of getting it, I think, I mean, and that's where I'm going with it. He says that God is actually in the midst of them, teaching them, ongoing, participle, teaching them uh, to love others, making them love others. It's very Ephesians 3-ish. Uh, Great stuff. Fresh, personal, easy to read, hopeful. This is a must-read letter. So in this podcast, we're going to look at uh, some of the cultural context in the world of Macedonia around 50 AD. Very important as we read First Thessalonians. You'll see why. Context, context, context. I think you'll appreciate this. Many of you will. Uh, next time, we're going to get uh, into the biblical text. We're going to pick up an Acts, by the way, this section of the second missionary journey. We're going to go very quickly. We're going to follow Paul and, and Luke and Silas and Timothy from Troas to Corinth. And this is the time period covered by the trip to Greece, so it's a lot of personal stuff here. But uh, I think it'll help First Thessalonians pop off the page. And then uh, we get back to the translation. Again, I started with the Greek consulted some qualified commentaries. By the way, I, I highly recommend Wanamaker's commentary. Oh my goodness, one of the best commentaries, the way he writes, the way he gets into the text. Uh, I would love to have him on the gospel rant. So my goal, again, is to get into the head of Paul and the people of his day. How do you communicate the gospel to pe those people, new people, people that, again, Paul is going to be bumping up against things he's never seen before. He's seen sort of, but, but not like this, right? Here we go. What do we know about Thessalonica, that region, Macedon, Achaia, Greece? In 120 BC, and this is important, Rome constructed the massive highway, the Via Ignatia, that made east-west travel very efficient through the uh, through the Balkan mountain range, which goes north-south. So it's very precipitous if you wanted to cross that in the winter, for instance. But the Via Ignatia crossed Macedonia from the Aegean Sea to the Adriatic. Uh, so the Aegean Sea between Asia and Achaia, and then the Adriatic between Greece, Achaia, and Italy. And, and so it's, a traveler goes from uh, across Macedonia they hop on a boat that takes them to Brindisium, where they pick up the Via Appia and goes on to Rome. And Thessalonica was on this amazing superhighway, Via Ignatia, at the head of the Thermaic Gulf, which was the largest Adriatic port on the Via Ignatia. So it was strategic. It thrived from trade and culture, and it just boomed. We think about 100,000 people, according to one 
expert, uh, pretty big. And, and uh, so it had trade from all over the world. And from there, you could go by land or by sea to the rest of the Mediterranean. And also very fortunate, the Thessalonians, this is, this is important, they picked the right side in the battle between Mark Anthony and Brutus in Philippi in 42 BC. And then later in 31 BC, the battle between Octavius and Mark Anthony. Uh, so they were on the side of the Republic, on the side of the emperors. And for that faithfulness to the Republic of Rome, they were granted honor of civitas liberae conditionis, which is, means they were, became a free city which means there were no Roman troops stationed there. They were exempt from Roman taxes. I mean, you can see the where business started booming. They had unhindered self-governance, kind of unhindered. I mean, you'd want to you wanna maintain the peace. This will be very important. You don't want Rome to come back in or have an excuse to send troops. So in some ways, they always had Rome looking over their shoulders and a little bit anxious, you'll see. Uh, they had local voting for leadership. They had freedom to hold public assemblies, city-administered courts. They could even mint money. Uh, this was different in Philippi. Philippi was part of a Roman colony, and they didn't have a lot of those freedoms. And this was also where the Macedonian provincial governor lived. So again, this was a this was an important place. Whether Paul knew it or not, he landed in a place that was very important for the for the gospel. The city was ruled by a council of politarchs. And they were actually elected by citizens. And these are going to come into play in Paul's story in Thessalonica. Politics, uh, politarchs, sorry, were recruited from the upper classes. They served one-year terms. And again, this is in contrast to other places in Achaia and Macedonia, uh, which are Roman colonies, where the Roman proconsul, for instance, had unquestioned authority. I, I'm thinking of Corinth, where Gallio... A single person, forget politarchs elected by the citizens of Corinth, only an appointed Roman bureaucrat held uh, Paul's fate in his hands. In Thessalonica, the missionaries' well-being, their hope for justice for any false charges was in the hands of politarchs, which were typically wealthy um, benefactors. Okay? Uh, and by the way, this is Acts 17, so you can see uh, what's going on uh, in Thessalonica. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house. That was where Paul was staying in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other brothers before the city officials, the politarchs, shouting, these men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here. And Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. And when they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. They made Jason and the others post bond and let them go. So you can see the problems that the gospel is running into. This won't be the, the last place that happens. Uh, so the politarchs are, are important. And some speculate that one of the first converts, Aristarchus, uh, was a member of the politarch. Uh, he was certainly a, a person of, who was impressive, but that's speculation. I think it's an interesting speculation, though. So to be clear, while Thessalonica was officially a Greek city, Greek and Roman identities were distinctively intertwined in Thessalonian life. Uh, Philippi, where Paul had been before Thessalonica, was much more Roman. It wasn't a free city. 
Think Roman soldiers, garrison there, retiring there, and Paul's treatment in Philippi was very different, as, as we will see. There was no Pilatarchus. So it's interesting to peel back the local color and see all of the things that Paul had to figure out uh, wherever he went. Every place he went had different things going on. The gospel has to be able to uh, wrap over those things. Um, and in some cases, his Roman citizenship was very critical, like in Philippi. Um, okay. A couple other things to know before we get into the, the short letter. Greece and Rome were honor-shame cultures. Honor-shame cultures. Meaning, and by the way, that's different from the United States, which is a guilt-innocence culture. We're all about an individual's responsibility and accountability to, to do things right, to, to be aware of their guilt, to admit their guilt, to repent. Uh, we take people to trial to determine guilt. In honor-shame cultures like the Middle East of Jesus and Paul's day, Rome, Greece, the worst possible thing that you could be shamed or that you do something shameful and are caught, that's the worst possible thing. Um, you, you, you don't recover from that. So Paul will highlight the gospel's DNA. This is important. As he's communicating to this culture, he's speaking in honor-shame language typically. So the gospel honors shamed people. It doesn't turn away from shamed people. It honors shamed people. That's a very, very important distinction. Here's John Barclay on the honor-shame culture. Quote, but in the ancient world, almost every aspect of worth was dependent upon one's public reputation, which was insecure and perpetually contestable at almost every point. To maintain your worth, you had to keep asserting it and defending it in the awareness that others could at any moment make a claim by which your worth would be undermined or outclassed. The rumor mill was the Roman social media. And again, keep thinking about Paul here in the, in the gospel. The rumor mill was the Roman social media, and they were ever anxious to make it clear that by one criterion or another, wealth, ancestry, education, legal status, physique, ethnicity, or character, their honor could be established in comparison with others. As Cicero put it, by nature, we yearn and hunger for honor. And once we have glimpsed, as it were, some part of its radiance, <laughs> there is nothing we are not prepared to bear and to suffer in order to secure it. And remember, uh, in Philippi, Paul really forced the uh, uh, the judges to publicly walk him out of the city and, and in some way shaming them and, and honoring him. Very important to him. We'll, we'll talk about that when we get to Acts. Back to the quote. Paul's antidote to this social poison, meaning shaming, has two ingredients. On the one hand, those who have been reconstructed by the Christ event are no longer invested in the forms of capital in which most people find their worth. Since ethnicity, status, and gender are no longer criteria of social worth, and since God pays no regard to the face but distributes his grace without regard to worth, the normal ground for competition have lost their significance." The believer's true worth and only worth is constituted by his or her identity in Christ, a gift received, not a status inherited or achieved. Within the new community, there stand out those whose lives are most marked by the new ethos created by this gift. Those, for instance, who are spiritual and given responsibility insofar as they are attuned to the Spirit. All the characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit are directed towards the construction of the community, from love onward. This sounds so much like Paul, by the way. <clears throat> Back to the quote. Spiritual people are so designated because they work with sensitivity to repair the community. 
Oh my goodness, very first Thessalonians. Uh, that's John Barclay. So, um, it's honor, shame, and and benefactors and patrons. You can't understand the Roman society inner workers and and certainly this journey into Achaia and to Rome without understanding the importance of uh, first Rome being Rome and Greece being honor shame cultures, but also related to that the social practice of patronage called Romanoi Uergatoi. Uh, which are Roman benefactors. So how does, in an honor-shame culture, do shamed ones become honored? Uh, and, and the answer to that is they need a benefactor. They can't do it on their own. They need a benefactor to honor them, and they then rely on the benefactor's name and reputation and honor. And it, Right? The, the gospel. That's us and Jesus. Okay? So let me, let me talk about this uh, Romanoi uergatoi. Very important. So like the Roman highways, we talked about how they interlace the entire Roman Empire, bringing commerce, wealth, culture, uh, missionaries, travelers. It's, it's important even to far-flung cultures. This is what links the, the artery system of Rome. There were, but there was another artery system, a critical patron-client relationship system that did the same thing with wealth and influence and donations and, of course, honor. And, and Rome was known for it. So the emperor was the highest patron. He he established. He worked with an. He didn't. Work, he didn't donate to everybody, but he he established a network of high level patronage relationships with whom he was very generous with money and influence and power and name. This patronage generosity then got funneled down through that second level down this economic pyramid to help provinces and cities and families throughout the empire. So think a honor pyramid that included a vast array of, of the society's wealthiest men, and by the way, women, in particular women we'll see in this section of Acts. Uh, and, and then they were expected to, to be generous patrons to the cities and the families and the tribes that they worked with, and that passed on down more or less to the lower societal rungs, at least whatever dredges were left. And to not do so in the Roman society and the culture was an act of shame. If you were a wealthy influential benefactor, and you weren't benef being a benef benefactor, you would have been a person of shame and would have been eventually caught. So in, th in cities like Thessalonica, even though they were a free city, they heavily depended upon the emperor's patronage channeled through this extended network, typically from wealthy Romans who immigrated to Thessalonica. So wealthy local citizens, Greek and Roman, uh, they were supposed to supply the market with grain in years when harvests were poor, make sure that food was there at low prices. They contributed to the cost of building and repairing temples and fountains and aqueducts so that the city has water. They organized distribution of food. They organized and ran festivals. This was the responsibility of the wealthy local citizens. They had governments, but it really was at the hands of the uergatoi. Uh, this institution of uergatism. It's a system, one expert said, of moral duties and legal obligations that emerged in Greek city-states in the Hellenistic period. It required the local wealthy, who had benefited from the system, to assume at their own expense most of the financial burden of running the cities. So in many ways, it's who you know, and, and are, are they seeing you as a client? And what, so what do the patrons, the benefactors, get out of the relationships? They get public respect. And remember, honor, shame, culture, this was what you wanted. 
They wanted public acclamation to their greatness and generosity and name and family. So, and as they get that, they gain social status in this pyramid and in the eyes of the emperor in Rome. And to not do so would be horrifically shameful. This is how the Roman Empire worked. So, and, and, and you've heard of emperor worship. This is one of the main roles and practice of emperor worship. I mean, not to say that there weren't religious and liturgical implications, that there weren't expectations of miracles and healing, uh, you know, uh, rescues and such. But honestly, the temple to the emperor and the practice of public worship of the emperor is part of this euergotism, right? Um, if, if you if you invest in the temple or if you practice public worship, you're, you're, you're expressing public gratitude for gifts given by Rome in this network. And you're also kind of politicking, you're hoping for even more gifts, right? So the more grateful you are, the more you should expect. So look, if you were sitting in the Roman Empire, you wanted to get on the good side of the emperor and to get these vast sons of cash and influence, you, you would set up a temple to the emperor and you would worship him as a god, it's part of the system, right? Now, I'm not saying you may not believe he's a god. Uh, I, I, I don't know. I haven't seen that research. But you are definitely partly doing this in order to gain influence and to please the emperor so you know he's not angry at you. So then if you were a more local Uergatoi benefactor and wanted to be recognized by the emperor in hopes of being given greater honor and wealth for your family and security for your family, then you would give graciously to the project and the ongoing upkeep of the temple and the cult for this. And, and for that, you would be publicly noticed in proclamation or by a letter to the emperor, or even better, by an inscription somewhere on the temple. And we see those regularly. We see honor and praise given to the gods and, quote, the Roman benefactors. So to the gods and and the Roman benefactors in stone. So Romano Uergatoi generously gave to the city, to the temple of the emperor, to the goddess Roma, and they were enshrined in temple inscriptions. And we've got hundreds of inscriptions from all the cities in Macedonia and show that their lives were bound up with wealth and influence of members of the upper class. Uh, and they also very likely became supporting patrons, many of them, to the new client the way, uh, Paul. And we're going to hear of Jason and Aristarchus and, and wealthy, important, influential women. And one of the clearest examples of this is in Corinth, Corinth, where Paul will publicly thank, there it is, right? That's what you do. This is not gaining favor or, you know, manipulating. This is just what you do in an honor-shame society. It's shameful to not. He's publicly thanking Phoebe uh, in, in uh, Sincrea near Corinth, for being one of his benefactors, prostatus. That's Romans 16, 1 to 2. Okay? In the letter to Thessalonians, it appears that Paul will do what good clients do and thank the patrons of the way and urge the Thessalonians to do likewise. We'll pick that up in the letter. All right. Uh, we're, this is going to be a little bit of a long podcast, but I want to get all of the cultural stuff done. Now let's break for a word from a couple of sponsors. What impacts you every day? There is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives. Museum of the Bible reveals the Bible's impact on your favorite musicians and artists, the way we measure time, social justice, our national monuments, and more. 
the Bible's impact is all around you. Discover how at museumofthebible.org slash impact. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. All right, welcome back. Uh, We're going to wrap this up. I want to briefly look at religion in Macedonia. I don't think there's a lot of surprises. It's a hodgepodge of gods and goddesses from all over the empire reflecting the population. They were the typical Greek and Roman pantheon, Zeus, Pan, Heracles, um, Hera, significant evidence of Egyptian temples, Serapis, for instance, mystery cults important like the worship of Kabiris. And of course, there was the worship of the emperor noted above and the worship of the goddess Roma, Interesting. She was very popular. She was kind of a maternal warrior deity who personified the city of Rome and and the the Roman philosophy, the Roman state. We see her in art and coins. She's usually depicted in military form, helmet, weapons, uh, or shown with a mural, mural crown, cornucopia, identifying her with protection, peace, prosperity. Um, We see her a lot in uh, Achaia. And of note, some suggest that Paul's message would have gotten confused with the Kabiris cult from Samothrace, one of the islands he passes by uh, when he comes to the the mainland from uh, Troas. Kabiris, like Christ, was a martyred hero who on occasion returned to life to aid his followers. And the worship of Kabiris apparently involved an initiation process in which sins were confessed and the initiates were cleansed through baptism and water and, quote, symbolic immersion in the blood of the martyred God. Well, doesn't that sound a lot like Christianity? Uh, The commentator Jewett says that this was a real problem. Many suggest, though, that these similarities were picked up actually in reverse, that the cult actually picked those up from Christianity, and uh, the evidences of these things were much later than Paul. But anyway, make note of that. I find that very interesting. All right. Lastly, let's talk about sex uh, and sexuality. This is important. Paul will will uh, uh, warn the citizens to avoid porneia, um, sexual sin. In Greece, social mores, oh my goodness, were dicey by biblical and, and by the way, even modern standards. Uh, troubling, And by the way, if you don't want to hear about sex or sexuality, no judgment for me. You don't have to listen to the rest of the context. We're going to get into some of the weeds. Uh, You may be uncomfortable. So just go on to the next podcast. You're not going to, you're going to miss a little bit, but not critical. 
Here, here's the summary. Paul is going to say to the Thessalonians and the Corinthians in particular that porneia, inappropriate sex and sexuality, is, is not just wrong because God says so. It's not honoring. It's, it's foundationally not honoring to those who you are to be loving and honoring to. And the Holy Spirit in you is pushing you to honor and love people. And if you're just uh, self-absorbed with, with sexual desires and you're not in control of that, you are dishonoring people that, that the Holy Spirit in you is loving. Are you with me? Uh, that's really quick and, and probably misdirected. But anyway, so anyway, you need the Holy Spirit to pull this off. There you are. That's the summary. So if you, if you leave the podcast, no judgment from me. All right. All right. For those who stay, let's get into the nitty gritty a bit. Uh, there's a lot out there. I'm going to try to summarize. In Rome and less so in Greece, it was improper to pursue or to have sex with another man's wife or daughter. It was shaming, it, particularly in Rome, in Greece some. But it was very accepted, get this, for, pe- for men in particular. I'll talk about women briefly but for men to participate in sex with a variety of prostitutes, and there were all different classes of prostitutes, and that would include women and young adolescent boys in particular. So some suggest this practice of pedestry, which is adult men with adolescent boys, particularly among the upper classes, which Paul will write to specifically in Thessalonia and Philippi and uh, Corinth, it was not only accepted, it wasn't a source of shame. It was encouraged, in fact, in many places as an act of education for the young boys, first. And second, a, a way, a means to keep men from pursuing other unacceptable forms of porneia, sex uh, not related to, to being married. So it had a peacekeeping force and uh, education for the young uh, adolescent boys. So there we are. Uh, that's what Paul was bumping into. It's a little bit different today. I mean, this is, this is certainly different than, than we see here in the West. There is no specific word for homosexual, uh, LGBTQ in Latin, but there's no doubt there, that there were gay relationships, lesbian relationships. We see them represented in writings, art, sculpture, Greek comedies, wall art, for instance, in Pompeii and Ephesus. But different from today, it's not about gender identity. That's the, that's the big issue today. And you know, if that's your issue, welcome. So glad you're here. Love to hear comments from you. But in Greece, particularly, it was about something different. So listen, here's a quote from a, a scholar. Gender did not determine whether a sexual partner was acceptable as long as a man's, this is about men primarily, man's enjoyment did not encroach upon another's man's integrity. It was immoral to have sex with another freeborn man's wife his marriageable daughter, his underage son, or with the man himself. Sexual use of another man's slave was subject to the owner's permission. Lack of self-control, meaning sexually, including in managing one's sex life, indicated that a man was incapable of governing others. Too much indulgence in low sensual pleasure threatened to erode the elite male's identity as a cultural, cultural, cultured person. So Paul will bump up into that, and uh, you'll see what he does in, in Thessalonians. And Thessalonians. Uh, male prostitution was, was uh, prevalent in uh, particularly urban areas, and there were streets known for male prostitutes. Baths were places where, where that could be found. Uh, in temples of Aphrodite, there were not only female prostitutes, but typically young boys. 
this is uh, from another expert. Roman society was patriarchal and freeborn male citizens possessed political liberty, libertas in the Roman, in Latin, and the right to rule both himself and his household, familia, virtue, virtus, was seen as an active quality through which a man defined himself. So virtue was your, your identity. The con quest mentality and cult of virility shaped same-sex relations. All right, listen to this. Roman men were free to enjoy sex with other males without a perceived loss of masculinity or social status as long as they took the dominant or penetrative role. Acceptable male partners were slaves, former slaves, prostitutes, entertainers, whose lifestyle placed them in the nebulous social realm of infamia, uh, which mean they didn't have a lot of rights to vote and things like that. Uh, excluded from the normal protections accorded to, so the infamia were excluded from the normal protections afforded to a citizen, even though they were technically free. Although Roman men in general seem to have preferred youth between the ages of 12 and 20 as sexual partners, freeborn male minors were off limits in certain periods in Rome, though professional prostitutes entertainers might remain sexually available well into adulthood. All right, uh, close quote. To put it simply, it was honorable in that culture to have gay sex, typically with adolescent boys if you were the penetrator. It was generally understood, again, this is so different from us, that's why I'm bringing this up. It was generally understood to be a shameful act in an honor-shame culture to be the penetrated male, the submissive male. One person refers to this as the penetrator-penetrated binary. It was expected and socially acceptable for a freeborn Roman man to want sex with both female and male partners as long as he took the penetrative role. All right, that's the mindset. That's what Paul is bumping into. Uh, various, and, and it, it was top down. Uh, some ancient sources, listen to this, Emperor Nero, um, he celebrated two public weddings with male, meaning he married himself to males. Once he took the role of the bride, Emperor Nero, and once he took the role of the groom. Uh, and there may have been a third where he was the bride, and where he actually wore the Roman bridal veil. This was the Emperor Nero. Uh, I mean, that's beyond the pale, but there you are. Uh, women uh, were expected, I mean, these married women, particularly, and single women were expected to remain pudicitia, which is uh, modest and, and uh, modest in dress and presentation. Divorce, look, in Greece, divorce wasn't a source of shame. Um, it wasn't a stigma. We still have that here in the United States. It's less than it was, but we still have that. Not in Greece, a little in Rome, but not in Greece. Uh, here's a quote. Any rep negative reputation attributed to divorce would have been due to related scandals rather than the divorce itself. In ancient Athens, both husband and wife had the power to initiate a divorce. That's different from Israel, Right. Uh, the wife could initiate divorce. Uh, quote, the husband simply had to send his wife back to her father and end the marriage. For the wife to obtain a divorce, she had to appear before the archon, the court. Though divorces instigated by the wife would have had to have been registered with the archon, he did not seem to have power to make any decision regarding it and would simply take record of it. So it wasn't a trial. She just had to file papers. The wife would likely also have needed the support of her father and family. The wife was financially protected by laws, which declared her dowry was to be returned in the case of divorce. Uh, real quickly, uh, lesbian sex was also recorded, but far less documented. It's exampled in literature, mythology, but it carried stigma societally. 
uh, it, it occurred, but it had a shame stigma. That's uh, that's important. So in a culture that embraced pedestry as educational, uh, lesbian sex was shameful. Paul would not have been shocked by the sexual promiscuity in Greece and Corinth. In particular, he had witnessed similar things in Antioch. And in fact, we suspect that so many of the converts from Antioch, like the Corinthians, were active, actively porneia. Uh, for Paul, it was not just labeling it a sin. He wanted the people to understand that it is not neutral. It has consequences, including the dishonoring of all involved. If you're filled with the Spirit, why would you move? Uh, why would you just try to satisfy your your longings, your epithumias, he calls them? It's, it's a necessary fruit of the Spirit to be more in control of your sex life, Paul is going to say. Okay? All right. As long. Sorry about that. Next podcast, we're going to take a look at the second missionary journey in Acts. I want to thank Life Audio again, lifeaudio.com for their help. Check out some of the other podcasts. Till next time, take heart, child of God. This is Chris Christensen, and back in 2006, I started a simple project a project to try and introduce more people to the Bible through Bible study called the Bible Study Podcast. It's a simple name and a simple idea. Each week, every week, we study one chapter of the Bible, talk about what it says, and what that might mean for us today. To listen now, go to lifeaudio.com or search for the Bible Study Podcast on your favorite podcast app.